Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. Paul continues and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, these next verses of Romans 10, the passage we're going to be looking at tonight, we're going to be studying these verses, have been taken out of context and preached as if they say, it's the, as if this passage is saying that if we don't tell people, they may never hear about Jesus. Has anybody ever heard preachers take this passage and say, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And if you don't tell them, they may never hear. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to check that interpretation against the context of Romans 10. Verses 14 through 21 and the rest of it. Also, I want to check it against the rest of Scripture. You see, we have a problem today where people can take passages of Scripture and make them say whatever you want them to say. But one of the only ways you can get a real correct interpretation of what the Scripture is saying is to check that interpretation that you have against the whole of Scripture. God wrote the whole book, and he wouldn't contradict himself. So if you find a passage that seems to be saying something, but that doesn't match up with the rest of the book, you probably don't have the right interpretation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give you a quick example. In Matthew chapter 9, around verse 37, Jesus said, The fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. And again, we've heard preachers say, We need... Need more laborers. Jesus needs more laborers. Isn't that what we've heard? Well, let me ask you a quick question. Does that match up, that interpretation match up with the rest of Scripture? Is God limited by how many people are working? No. Actually, he even himself said, if these uh, disciples of mine don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. It's Acts 17, 25 says that he's, God's not served by human hands if he needed anything. Actually, if you were to go back just two chapters in Matthew chapter 7, you would realize that Jesus had just said that the narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And how many find it? Few. There's that word again. In other words, what Jesus was showing in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, when he said the fields are wide into harvest, but the laborers are few, is not that we don't have enough laborers, but that in God's big plan to reach the world, the amount of people that he's going to use are going to be small. It's a limited number we're starting with all already. Therefore, the next verse says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, listen closely, into his harvest. In other words, God is showing us, Jesus is showing us that in God's plan to reach the world, instead of us trying to put it all on us and try to get the word out, which sounds really good, we should be checking with the Lord of the harvest who's had this plan, as you're going to see tonight, throughout the entire time of mankind on the earth. And he's working it out in his way at his time. And if we are to be used by him, we should be checking with him and allowing him to show us what he would have each of us do in his plan. He's never said, I need more. I don't have enough. Can you imagine someone ever standing before God and God saying, you know what? I really wanted you to be saved, but Butch didn't tell you. 
But unfortunately, we have heard Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and following preached. How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? If you don't tell them, they may never hear. And I want to show you from the context in Romans 10 and from the context of the whole of Scripture, that's not the correct interpretation. And I'll show you what the correct interpretation is. All right. Now, before we close, though, you're going to hear me also show you that we still should be telling people. Let's let the scripture speak to us, all right? So go to Romans chapter 1. Let's check that interpretation of if you don't tell them, they may never hear. Let's check that against the whole of scripture. In Romans chapter 1, look at verses 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they what they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul lays out that since the beginning of creation, God has revealed his divine nature, his eternal power. They've been clearly seen. So everybody knows that God exists. But then go to chapter 2, and you're going to see something else here. Go to chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. What he's showing here is there are those, who we, because we're jumping through, he's already shown in Romans 1 that there are those who have got the written law of God. There are others who hadn't. The Jews got a lot more revealed to them. Remember, we've been learning that in our study. But all those who have sinned without the written law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For listen closely, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Listen closely. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. He said, first of all, God has revealed to everyone that he exists. Everyone's without excuse. There's really no such thing as an atheist. Then secondly, he goes on and he says, even though the Romans, I'm sorry, not, not the Romans, but the Jews had had the law. Even the Gentiles who don't have the written law revealed to them like the Jews did. He wrote his law on their hearts. Everyone's born with a sense of right and wrong. Everyone has a conscience of things that should be done or shouldn't be done. And they feel bad because they didn't do the things they knew they should and so on. And God said, here Paul, God says to Paul that God has written his law on their hearts. And now listen to what he says in verse 16. On that day when God will judge all men's secrets through who? Through Jesus Christ. Hang on for a second, and you're going to see this answered tonight later on, but I'm going to ask you a question. How can God hold everybody accountable for what they did with Jesus if they didn't hear about Jesus? But the Bible says that God is going to judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ as the gospel declares. Now, we'll answer that question later on tonight. But let that sink in. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look again at verses 8 through 13. 
Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. We studied this last week, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is a passage that they're quoting from Deuteronomy. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For, saved, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, as we saw last week, these are all quotes from the Old Testament where God had been showing them that his plan for salvation has always been through his mercy, his compassion, his grace, by man's faith in his his provision for their sin. There's always been a problem that man has had since the fall, since Adam and Eve, that we are now guilty before God. We are sinners and we sin and we don't follow God's law. Even whether we've heard it, we don't keep it. And if we haven't heard it, he's shown on our hearts that we're not able to keep the law of what we think is even right and wrong. And then he goes on and he says, oh, by the way, even in the Old Testament, he has shown you Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You're not saved by how good you are. You're saved by calling on the name of the Lord. So when we read in Romans 9, God introduces himself to Moses and he says, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on who I'll have compassion. We get caught up in all this, you know, predestination and free will stuff and we miss what God has been saying. He says, you want to know me? You have to have my mercy. You want to know me? You need my compassion. You need my forgiveness. Go to Romans 10, verses 18 through 21. But remember, the question is, is this a correct interpretation by saying, if we don't tell them, they may never hear. Verse 18 answers that question. It says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For, and again, you see in your Bibles, this is a quote from the Old Testament, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Keep reading. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So I'm going to ask you, does the whole of Scripture, and we're not done, does the whole of Scripture match up with an interpretation that if you don't tell them, they may never hear? No. They will hear in many different ways. But go to Colossians chapter 1. This is a passage I've quoted to you a bunch. And then in doing my study for this, I ran across a passage in Colossians that I have never seen before. I'm going to show you the one I've seen before and quoted to you before. But go to Colossians 1. And when I say I've never seen it before, I'm not saying I never read it. I've even taught the whole book of Colossians, but there's something I'm about to show you that I had never seen before. It just jumped off the page. Go to Colossians 1, verse 23. Paul's in the middle of one of his many run-on sentences. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So has the gospel been preached in the whole world? Yes. Go to Colossians 1, though. Look at verses 3 through 6. 
I had never seen this in the introduction. We thank, always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Folks, is the gospel, according to the scriptures, being preached in the whole world? Yes, it has been. It will be. He's using creation. He's using his, his law. He's using his law written on people's hearts if they've never seen his written law. He's using their conscience, his spirit. He's using missionaries. The word has been going out and will continue to go out. Don't fall prey to if you don't tell them they may never hear. That's not what the scripture says. Actually, as you're going to see, what Paul's saying in Romans 10 in the full context of this is this. He's laid out that they have heard. It's words near you. It's in your mouth. This gospel we're proclaiming. It's been there all along in the Old Testament. And then he goes on and says, have they not heard? Of course they did. In those verses in between, what he's saying is this. God would never expect someone to believe in something they had never heard. And God would never expect them to hear something unless someone had shared it with them. And God would never expect someone to share it with them unless he had sent them. Do you understand? When it says, how can they hear unless someone preaches and how can they believe unless they've heard? God, Paul's saying, they did hear. God wouldn't expect them to believe something. This is, this is new to me. I've never heard this before. No, you have. You have heard it. It's been proclaimed in many different ways, in many different levels. And go to Romans 10 again, verse 18. Did they hear? What does verse 18 say? Indeed, they have. His voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. By the way, how blessed are the feet that preach the good news? Go with me to Isaiah 52. Once again, that's a quote from the Old Testament. Paul has filled Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 with passages, quotes from the Old Testament to show everybody, look, this is not a new thing. It's been there all along. Look at chapter, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So even in the Old Testament, had God been sending people out? Yes. See, as you're going to see by the end of tonight, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The question is, will you let him use you? But don't think for a second he needs you. And if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. It's way bigger than that. I was talking with my wife about this tonight at dinner. How foolish is it to, for us in this time period in history to think that it's up to us? And that's what we've been taught. It's up to us. We got to get it out. How foolish is that to think that the God of the universe that has been working his plan of salvation for thousands of years and has it all figured out and he's doing it. How foolish it is to think that it's up to us and if we don't do it, it won't get done. But Jim, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 24 around verse 14 that the gospel will be preached, will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. 
We've heard preachers talk about as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end can come. We've got to get the gospel to the whole world where we've already just read in more than one place. The gospel's already been preached in the whole world. But on top of that, again, that's putting it back on us. To, let's just say that that's a correct interpretation of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14. That as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come. That means there are generations of people who never heard. Correct? If we haven't gotten it to the whole world, there's parts of the whole world that have never heard. That doesn't match up with the Holy Scripture, nor the heart of God. Oh, by the way, as you've heard me teach, and if not, you need to go to my Revelation study. If you actually compare Matthew 24 with the opening of the seals in the book of Revelation, you'll realize that when his disciples come to him and say, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He starts laying out the entire tribulation period, the time of Jacob's troubles, the birth pains that the Old Testament talked about. And he says there's going to be Antichrist. That's the first seal, the man on the white horse. There's going to be wars, second horse. There's going to be famines, third seal. You see what I'm saying? Oh, boom, boom, boom. He's laying out the tribulation period. And if you read your Bible and knew what the scripture said, that in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, God shows that at the very end of the tribulation period, there's going to be an angel that hovers in midair, proclaims the gospel one more time to the whole world, and then Jesus comes back. He wasn't talking about it's up to us. He was just telling them, oh, you're going to see the Antichrist step into the wing of the temple. Jews, you better get out of here. And the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world one more time at that point, and then the end will come. Folks, Let's do this. It'd be good for us. Let's get over ourselves. It ain't up to us. Oh, as you're going to hear by the end of the message tonight, God wants to use us. And he would love to use you, but he doesn't need you. And it's so freeing to know that he's going to get his stuff done. They heard the gospel. Well, before we go any further, go back to Romans chapter 10 again and look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Another way to translate that is the message about Christ. The word of Christ could be the message about Christ. Now listen closely. That makes us sometimes think that only those people that were born after Jesus was born of Mary and lived and died and rose from the dead can believe in Jesus. Actually, the Old Testament has all along been pointing to Jesus. You hopefully understand this, right? The Bible preachers will call it the scarlet thread, that red of the blood that has been shed and pointed to all throughout the Old Testament. In each book of the Bible, there's a pointing to Jesus. Every single one. Even back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Adam and Eve sin and God comes and says, there's going to be a seed, a descendant of the woman, Satan, that's going to crush your head. And little by little, this one that has been planned and crucified in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, slain before the foundation of the world, has been pointed out little by little. More and more we keep seeing about him, and you're going to see some more of these passages tonight. The word about Christ, the word of Christ, the message about Christ has been preached all along. David might not have known his actual name, but David knew he existed. Job did not maybe know his name, but he knew he existed. You go back and read Job chapter 33, where Job says, oh, if there is only one, one of a thousand who could come and be a redeemer, who could come and say, I know he sinned, but I've paid his ransom. And then his youth would be restored. And then what does he say? 
in my flesh. I know I'm going to die, but in my flesh one day I'm going to see God. Why? Because of this one that he knew was coming that was going to do it. And by the way, Job, you can trace all the way back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's even before the law came and all the other things that were all pointing to Jesus in the sacrificial system. So faith comes from hearing and hearing about the message of Jesus, Old Testament and New pointing to God's provision for man's sin by faith alone in his mercy, his forgiveness. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 17 through 21. Listen how Paul says it here to the, uh, the elders or the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, look at verses 17 through 21. Now from Miletus, he, this is Paul, sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, they, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility with te- and with tears and trials that happened to me through the pl- plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, let me just say something to you. You want to share the good news? You want to share the gospel? Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about the fact that God has already paid for your sins. Tell them that the only way anyone can be made right is through faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. There's only one way, and that's by faith alone in God's provision for man's sin. And he's been pointed to all through the Old Testament. He's now come on the scene. He's risen from the dead. It's one of the most provable events in human history. And he's now offering anyone who believes and understands their sin problem and by faith receives that gift, you can be saved. Not by how good you are, but by his grace. So did they hear? Of course they did. But not only did they hear the gospel, they didn't obey it. Go back to Romans 10 and look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed? What's the next part? What he has heard from us. Don't miss that. They not only didn't believe, I'm sorry, didn't obey it. They didn't believe it. Look at again. Lord, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, when Isaiah says, who has believed what he's heard from us, what's Isaiah saying? They heard it. But they didn't believe it. And they didn't obey it. There's only one way to be saved, folks. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament saints, that's how they were saved. The righteous shall live by... Y'all knew that was written in the Old Testament, right? Y'all know when David sinned with Bathsheba... He says to God, make me clean. Give me a new heart. I'd do a sacrifice if you wanted it, but that's not what you want. You want a broken and repentant heart. That you won't despise. Lord, I need you to wash me. Cleanse me with hyssop. I need your blood to cover me. But he hadn't heard about Jesus. Oh, he had. He's been talked about all through the scriptures. This one that was going to come. Well, let's go back and look at a real clear place that he was discussed or talked about. Go to Isaiah 53, the passage that David, uh, Paul is actually quoting from right now. Isaiah 53, look at verses 1 through 12. 
Again, written hundreds of years before Jesus even came on the scene. Oh, he's been around all along. He's God. But listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been revealed. He's been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we, wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like the, a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. In other words, he's going to rise from the dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's Jesus. That's all there. Hundreds of years before it happened in time. But actually it had already happened in the mind of God. God sees it all as done. And all along, he's been saying, understand your sin, come to me and believe in my provision for your sin, repent of what you've done, give me your life, and I'll make you righteous. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you grace. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll make you righteous because of the fact that this one that I've already been pointing you to all along is going to take care of it for you, and all you have to do is believe it. It's interesting how Philip was actually, because of the stoning of Stephen, the church was scattered. In Acts chapter 8, he ends up in Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, he's telling people about Jesus, and a revival breaks out. All these people get saved, and a great revival breaks out in Samaria. And in the middle of the revival, you see, back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, the focus should be following Jesus. And as we walk with Jesus, he sets up our appointments. We've turned it around, and we're supposed to be fishers of men. And we're supposed to go out and tell everybody. And do y'all realize that the early church devoted themselves to four things, and none of them were evangelism? In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayer. Oh, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Evangelism wasn't the focus. We have hijacked God's plan of 
accomplishing his purposes in the globe. And we've said it's up to us. And if we don't tell them, they may never hear. And we've got to get more people because we don't have enough. And we've got to go out. And Jesus all along said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is my plan. And I've got a plan. And I'm doing it in my way. And all I ask you to do is just walk with me. And so Philip, learning how to do that, in the middle of the revival in Samaria, the Spirit tells him to leave there and head down a desert road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Most of us would say, but the revival's going on here. God says, I'll take care of that. I got a plan for you. Follow me. So he leaves as he doesn't even know where he's going. He just starts heading toward Gaza. As he's on his way, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch. Now let that sink in for a minute. Most likely a black man who is sitting in a chariot. He was on his way to Jerusalem to worship. So even though he wasn't a Jew, he must have believed in the God of the Jews because he's heard of him somehow, some way. And he's actually sitting there reading the scroll of Isaiah. And the spirit tells Philip to go over to the chariot and talk to him. So he goes up and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And he jumps up in the chariot and he starts to explain. And I love the question the Ethiopian unit asked. He said, help me out here. He's reading Isaiah 53. He says, is, he, is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? Because it's obvious this is an important person. We need to know who it is. Folks, God is already at work. And all we're to do is walk with him and he sets the appointments. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later tonight and something that happened to me yesterday. But go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 37 and 38. John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. Though he had done so many signs, Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed, there it is again, what he heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Didn't Jesus tell the cities of Capernaum that if the miracles that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes? You've had more light revealed to you. You've seen, you've heard. But they would not believe. Go to Matthew 13. I want you to see this. Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. Jesus already told the parable of the sower, but now he's explaining it. And if you're not willing, I mean, so if, if you don't have any problem underlining in your Bible, I don't. I've got things highlighted and marked. Look at the verse 18. And by the way, who's talking now? All right, Jesus is. Let me ask you a quick question before we go any further. Do you think Jesus understands how this salvation thing works? All right, let's be honest. A lot of us are still a little confused, myself included, right? Because we don't fully understand how God does his stuff. We have enough to believe, but the moment anybody says, I've got God's, how God saves all figured out, you've already proven your ignorance, all right? But we would agree that Jesus knows how this salvation thing works, correct? Listen to what he says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. We've always imagined the path thing as the seed hit it and they didn't have any chance to respond. Bird came and took it away. But Jesus says, even though the bird came and took it away, it was sown in their heart. They just didn't do anything with it. That's why in the book of Hebrews, 
It talks about those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who reject it and fall away. It's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Folks, God is the one who plants the seed. God, and by the way, James 1 verse 21 says this, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Jesus says they heard it. They heard the word. It had been sown in their heart. Verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. And immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as wrote was sown among the thorns, this is the one who, let's say it, hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for the, what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word. And understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Well, how do we get to be one of those people that understands it? Because if everybody hears it, don't you want to be one of those ones that understands it? How do we get there? Do you all know? And if you don't know, I've I've failed because I've been showing you all along through faith and humility and humbling ourselves and acknowledging when God shows you that you need him and his wisdom and his insight. Remember Matthew 11, Jesus said this. He said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but revealed them to little children for such was your gracious will. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone the son chooses to reveal him. But I thought everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, yes, everybody can be saved. He's made it available to everyone. But he's also put his plan in place that there's only one way that he'll give you that salvation is if you humble yourself, acknowledge you're a sinner, stop thinking he can do his part and you do your part and the two of you will get you there. But no, you fall on your face and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need what you did. I need your righteousness. This has been your plan all along. And... Lord, I want to believe. I want to understand. Would you give me? I need your help to understand it. And he will. He will. Paul then goes on. Go back to Romans 10. This is going to be kind of cool. God opened my eyes to something that I've been quoting and preaching for years, but never fully understood. And I don't fully understand it now, but I understand it a little bit more. Paul then goes on and, and, and shows them that God had also shown the Jews that he would, because of their unbelief and disobedience, save the Gentiles to make the Jews what? Jealous. That's interesting. God's not done with Israel, folks. As you're going to see when we get to chapter 11 next week. They've been set aside for a while. They still, a Jew here and a Jew there can be saved. And God's still offering salvation to the Jews. But their drawing is a lot less right now. They've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. But at the same time, it's not like any Jew can't be saved. They still can, but it's harder now. The amount of drawing is less. His ability to, sorry, the way that he opens hearts and eyes, he's dimmed it a little bit. They have to work a little harder. But listen, he's doing what he's doing with us right now. For the purposes of making Israel jealous. And as you're going to see next week, don't believe any teacher that tells you the church has replaced Israel. No, no, he's not done with Israel. This is just something he's doing to finish what he's got in mind for Israel. But there's, there's another level to it that I haven't seen before, and I can't wait to show it to you. Go to Romans 10 again, verses 19 and 21. 
He not only has just said in verse 18 that they have heard the gospel, his words going to all the earth. But then he says in verse 19 and through 21, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Later on, you can go look at the place where it's quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. God's laying out in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy their whole history of Israel. He says, here's what you did. Here's what I did to draw you. Here's how I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you into the promised land. But you're going to do this down the road and then I'm going to do this and then you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. And in the middle of that, in verse 21, he says, you're going to go after other gods that aren't gods and worship idols to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people. I'm going to use them to make you jealous. Go to Isaiah 65. Look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 65, look at verses 1 and 2. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. Here God says, I've been all along holding out my hands to an obstinate people, the nation of Israel. I'm ready to give this salvation to whoever calls to me. Now think, let this sink in for a minute. He says, I've been offering it to you, but you've rejected it. You've heard and heard and heard and seen, but you've rejected it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a people that you don't even consider a people and a people that you would agree are very wicked, very sinful, have not been seeking God. They don't even look for God. And I'm going to give them the same salvation that I've been offering to you guys all along. And they're going to receive it. But, but they're heathens. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to choose some of the biggest heathens to show how good my grace is. To show you, Israel, that it's not by your effort or how good you've been. But it's simply by my grace. It's been received by faith. And that's it. He's using us to make Israel jealous, but he's also at the same time showing it has nothing to do with how good you've been. Because I'm taking a group of people that have been wicked from day one. They haven't even gone to synagogue. They haven't even followed the laws. They didn't even know the laws were there. Oh, they knew they were guilty. I showed them on their hearts, but I'm just going to save them just like I've been offering to you. And there's going to come a day, and I can't wait, and I'm praying for it to happen because that means we're out of here. But listen, there's going to come a day when the Jews are all of a sudden going to say, if all those people had to do was just believe it and receive it, that's all we have to do. Pray for Israel to have their eyes opened. God's purpose in saving the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. Go to Romans 11. Just give you a commercial for next week. Look at verses 11 through 14. Romans 11, 11 through 14. 
He says, so, so I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In Matthew 21, go to Matthew 21, verses 33 through 45. I'm going to take you through some passages real quick to show you how Jesus had been showing the nation of Israel this all along and how he was going to be saving the Gentiles to show them that, again, it has nothing to do with how good you are. It's just my grace. In Matthew 21, look at verse 33. Hear then another parable, Jesus again speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Listen closely. Jesus asks the question now. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? By the way, who answers in verse 41? Does Jesus answer it? No, they answer it. They said to him, he'll put out those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of, in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And they repented and said, we're sorry and we want to get it right. No, they didn't, did they? They didn't. They should have. And what's interesting is when Jesus tells this story, he then says, what's the owner of the, of the vineyard going to do when they kill his son? They, they understood. He's going to wipe them out and give it to those who will produce the fruit. Yes, that's what he's doing right now in the church age, folks. Oh, let me just make a little commercial. How foolish and sad it is that we in the church aren't doing a real good job of letting God make Israel jealous through us because we get so caught up in legalism and rules and you got to be good enough? No. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. That's how you're saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the message about Jesus. That's it. That's it. Well, isn't it Jesus and? No. It's Jesus. He did it all. If you look at the scriptures, you'll see many places where Jesus is quoted in the Old Testament as saying, I have worked my own salvation for me. I've accomplished it myself. He didn't. By the way, when all his disciples, when Jesus was being crucified, what were all the disciples doing? Running and hiding and acting like they didn't know him. Didn't, do you really think he needs us? 
Because didn't he plan to use the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles? How'd they do? But guess what? Everything's right on schedule. And the church, we haven't been super impressive at times. The salt is losing its saltiness. But guess what? Everything's right on schedule. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Let me say something to you folks. I'm going to just say this real quick. Take it from a traveling preacher. The church is fine. God's getting his stuff done. The church is fine. Now, your local congregation might not be looking so good. But that's probably because you're too busy trying to hang on to what was instead of keeping following Jesus. But that's another message for another time. In Matthew 22, we're not going to read it, but in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 10, Jesus tells the parable of him going and offering, can go invite him, go invite him, go invite him. And they all had other things to do. So what does he say? They've deemed themselves unworthy, going out into the highways and the byways and anyone. And go get them all, the good and the bad. Go to Luke 15. Luke 15, look at verses 11 through 24. Again, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 24, who's talking? It's Jesus. Then he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And this is what I'm going to say to him. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father, who was watching, saw him, who was looking for him, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And by the way, he's hugging him and kissing him. Has the son had his speech yet? God so loved the world, he sent his son. And he already had his son die for everybody. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, God loves the people in the world that are lost just as much as he loves you and me. We've just got the ability to receive all of his love now because of Jesus, but he loves them just as much. So the father, so the son said, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. These are all representation of being a son and not a slave. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What is Jesus showing them? Here's somebody that just blew it. But when he repented and said, I just want to come back, total forgiveness. Oh, if you know the rest of the story, though, the older brother, he hears the party going on and he says, what's going on? He doesn't even go in there. He waits out. He's all mad. The father, this is something a Middle Eastern man would never have done. He went out and pursued him, pleaded with him, come join the party. This is what the guy says. The older brother says, all these years I've served you. I've slaved for you. 
and you haven't even given me a goat. The father says, my son, you're always with me. I'm always with you. And everything I have is yours. In other words, it's all been here. It's been to be received by faith, not by you earning it. Let me tell you what happened yesterday real quick, and then we'll start heading toward our close. By the way, if you go back and look at Jeremiah 29, verse chapter 11, sorry, verses 11 and following, Jeremiah 29, 11 and following, God tells the nation of Israel, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You're going to. We'll deal with that next week. But yesterday, again, I try to live with this mindset of this is God's harvest. And I don't have to go out and try to reach everybody. And I don't have to go knock on every door and say, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? That all sounds real good. And we can get a bunch of people signed up and worked up. And we can fish all night and catch nothing. But yesterday, I had a rough day. I was invited by a pastor and two other people from First Baptist Melbourne to go play golf at Aqua Arena for free. So I did. Had fun. I'm soaked with sweat because I like to walk and it was hot. And about the 15th hole, I get a text on my phone. Somebody else saying, hey, do you want to golf? I'm like, I'm in the middle of a round. But maybe there might be some time. I got to teach Bible study tonight. I told this person, I tell you what, I've got a couple of things to do. I've got to run to this office. I've got to go here. I've got to do that. If you can make a tea time for 1230 and we get off and it's not busy and we play fast, I think I can get another 18 in before I get home, get a shower and go to teach Bible study. So we do. We get to the first tea. Me and this other guy who's a believer, he's on the board for my ministry. We get to the first tea. And as we're about to tee off, the starter lady comes up and says, hey, Jim, because they know me. They're my member at this course. Said, do you, uh, do you want company? And a young man in his 20s pulls up in a golf cart, got a beard and everything. And I said, sure. I said, I hate playing by myself. You're welcome to come play with us. So he comes up on the tee box. And I just turned to him and I said, let, let me just tell you what you're about to deal with. We are in a hurry. And I've got to be somewhere. I didn't tell him where. I just said, I've got to be somewhere. And we're going to try to play this 18 holes in two and a half hours, three hours at the most. And we play fast. We're going to hit it and go and hit it and go. And I said, I want you to play with us, but you need to know what you're dealing with. Because I didn't want him slowing us down. And he goes, oh, I'm not that good. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, I was really just wanting to drink a little and play some music. Because a lot of people just go play by themselves and play music in their golf cart and stuff. And I said, you know what, you're, you're welcome to do that. I said, but you might not enjoy playing with us. Because in my mind, I'm thinking he's going to slow us down. And so he goes, I'll tell you what, why don't you just go, you guys go, and I'll play behind you. Well, I'm halfway down the first tee, and I come under conviction. And God says, I didn't have him pull up right as you were there, orchestrate all the timing of everything, and have him show up at that moment for you to go, don't play with us, you'll slow us down. So I started praying. I said, Lord, thank you that you're gracious. Thank you that whoever this, his name was Brandon. I said, thank you that Brandon will hear, even if I don't tell him, but I'd like another chance. If what I'm hearing is you, and I think it's you, could you work it out that another opportunity for him to join us happens? And so we just keep playing, and he stays a hole or two behind us, but he's not doing too bad. And when we get to the 18th, sorry, the 10th hole, we finish nine. 
at this point, I've walked 27 holes in the heat, and I'm not feeling too good. And so I told Tony, who rides in his cart, I said, look, I'm just going to throw my push cart in my car, and I'm going to jump in the cart with you, and we'll play the last nine in a cart. It'll go faster, and I'll be cooler. So we do all that. We get to the 10th tee, and right before I tee off, up comes this young man. And we hadn't hit yet, and the Lord said, here you go. And I said, hey, Brandon, do you want to join us? I said, you're keeping up with us. You won't slow us down. Come on. He said, I'd love that. Two holes later, I hit a ball that ends up in a pond. And I jokingly said to my buddy, oh, another baptism. <laughs> he goes, my girlfriend just got baptized yesterday. Actually, no, son. He said son. This was yesterday. He said son. He goes, my girlfriend just got baptized Sunday. I go, where? He goes, Elevation Church. I go, that's cool. I said, I might as well tell you. We're in a hurry because I'm a preacher and I got to teach a Bible study tonight. He goes, oh, really? He goes, I go to church too. I said, cool. I said, but you know what's neat? I said, when we stand before God, he's not going to ask us what church we go to. He's going to ask us what we did with his son. He goes, so I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to live a good life. And for the next few holes, I got to show him from the scriptures that it's faith alone in Jesus and not anything we do. And that if you're putting any confidence in how good you've been, you're going to be miserable, first of all, because you're not going to be able to do it. And secondly, you might not have it. 18th Green, I introduced him to my ministry and give him a business card. And he made this statement. He goes, memorize this face. You may be seeing me again. I say all that to bring us to our close tonight. In Romans 10, verses 14 and following, as much as this is not saying, they won't, if we don't tell them, they may never hear. That's not what it's saying. There still is something in here I don't want you to miss. Blessed are what? Go, go look at it again. Verse 14, how will they call on whom they've not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful or blessed are the feet of those who watch, who what? Preach the good news. See, we could take this message and say, God's going to get his stuff done. Let's all pull up a chair. Thank God we're in. But we would miss the fact that he still uses people, does he not? I'm going to ask you a question. This will, make sure whether not, this will determine whether or not we continue for another hour or you get to go home. <laughs> Has the gospel been preached in the whole world? Yes. yes. But are there not people being born every single day who still need to hear? Yes. Is God not still orchestrating where people live? By the way, Acts 17, Paul says that he determines when we'd be born and where and the exact places we'd live. And he does this so that people would reach out for him. And he moves us sometimes to put us in places so people can hear. And I want to remind you, you will be blessed if you let God use your feet to spread the message of Jesus. Don't go out and try to tell everybody. You learn how to walk with Jesus and let him show you the appointments that he has set up. Do you understand? Learn how to recognize when God says, I'm doing something here. Instead of trying to go make something happen. Do you understand the difference? Learn how to recognize when he says, I'm doing something and I want it to use you. Sometimes you'll plant, sometimes you'll water, sometimes you'll get to see the harvest. But in Matthew 4, again, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
You just follow me. I'll set the appointments. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you all. But does that mean we're all to go? Careful. He determines when we go and where we go. The same Jesus who said, Blessed are those who have left father and houses and mothers and lands for God my name's sake is the same one who told the demoniac, I want you to go home. The demoniac was trying to get in the boat and go on mission with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no, I want you to go home. We need to learn how to walk with him. Jesus in Matthew 16, right after saying to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, you got it right. My father opened your eyes. And then in verse 20, he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, most of us would say, wait a minute, he got it right. Wouldn't you say you got it right now? Go tell everybody. No, I'm Lord of the harvest. I determine when we go and where we go and when you speak and when you don't speak. These books that are going out of Revelation, we're just letting God tell us where to send them and when. And God's doing amazing things with this book. It's crazy. But we don't have a marketing strategy. You won't find it on Amazon. But we also believe that God will do what he wants to do with what it is he asks us to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. By the way, you're not supposed to go to all those places, but he might have you end up in one of them. You don't know. You understand? Will they hear if we don't tell them? Yeah. Everything's right on schedule. But you and I have the chance to be blessed by God, to enjoy the joy that comes from telling everybody the good news about Jesus. And the good news is faith alone and God's provision for man's sin. I love you. We'll see you next week.